Hey everyone, I'm Britt. Welcome to Educate Me, a podcast where we share stories of surviving and thriving in graduate school. This week I have with me Allie Watts. Allie, can you go ahead and introduce yourself? Absolutely. And thank you, Britt, for inviting me to be on. I'm very excited to be able to share with you and your audience. Um, so my name's Allie Watts. I'm a fourth year PhD candidate at Penn State University. Um, I am in the work with the Center for the Study of Higher Education, um, and I'm also doing a, a doctoral minor in critical social thought. So tell me about your research project. Yeah, so I have, um, I think, a couple different threads that I play with. Um, one is that my prior graduate work is in rhetoric and communication. Mm. Um, so I'm really interested in the discourses that we use, how we shape our institutions through language. Um, and the history of language as it operates within institutional policy. Um, and then more broadly, um, I do work around racial equity um, in the, the context of the United States. Um, and that's taken a couple different forms. Um, one of the major threads in my work has been institutional histories around desegregation north of the Mason-Dixon line, um, mm. so states that of Civil War era fought on the side of the Union and have largely talked about themselves as being significantly more progressive, not having the same um, segregated education systems as schools in the southern United States. Um, and that's not entirely true. Right? There's much more complicated history there. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I've done work there. And then my dissertation is actually about how we use um, foundation funding from philanthropies like mm. Ford Foundation, Mellon Foundation, Lumina, folks like that, um, to support diversity, equity, inclusion, and anti-racist projects on campuses. Both the, the possibilities and the potential dangers of having that kind of philanthropic higher education relationship. That's really interesting because that also makes me think of we have, um, or we've had issues in Canada of not necessarily philanthropic organizations funding research, but institutions or companies funding research and the optics of it, even if they're entirely separate from it, but the optics. So uh, if they have an institution named after them within the university and then they're funding research, how can that research be critical of that organization or be critical of like, I mean, in Alberta, oil and gas, right? Oil and gas companies fund research all the time but how do we allow for that to still be a academically free environment and there's free inquiry and free criticism and whatnot there? Yeah, um, so I think what you're bringing up is a really interesting point uh, of the lit review that I wrote for my dissertation, my proposal for my dissertation, huh. um, be because we, we really haven't studied foundation philanthropy in the field of higher education at all. Um, and I think part of that is a fear of um, looking too closely at the hand that feeds us in some ways, right. because we, yeah. we want the grant money, we don't want to be too critical. Um, but what scholarship does exist um, tends to be on those kind of more conservative, more business-oriented foundations and the potential conflict of interest um, and limitations of academic freedom that might come if you're tying yourself to um, and oil and gas, or to yeah. the Koch brothers in the United States. Yeah. Like that. Um, where there really is no literature um, is on the so-called more liberal foundations, these broader nonprofit foundations um, that do a lot of this work 
um, and have historically. So folks like the Ford Foundation, for example, were very active in the civil rights movement in the United States. Um, but one of the things that they did very intentionally and strategically was to fund particular groups within the civil rights movement um, right. in order to demilitarize, in order to de-radicalize and make sure that the projects that were getting funded were ones that could disrupt a little bit, but weren't going to overthrow systems, right? They were going to stay palatable to those in right. power without too much disruption. Um, so it was a, a very intentional channeling of funding and channeling of support um, to, to make sure things didn't get too scary, didn't get too disruptive to mm. kind of white supremacist neoliberal structures. And I, I worry that that may happen again today um, as we're moving into, I think, a new era of um, foundation funding for diversity, equity, and inclusion projects. Right, and there's there's this interesting conversation happening in Alberta too, where uh, it's not just funding those sorts of projects, but um, like my university really looks to philanthropy now to build buildings and to even do do the day to day work that we do. And so um, there's some criticism there of, I mean, we generally have more government funding of of higher education in general in Canada, but a criticism there that the government is failing, and so only we only push forward what the, what the rich want and the, who can afford to be philanthropic. And I mean, they don't really get a whole lot of say in even how the buildings are built. But for example, there's a new building on campus where the top floor is going to be the, the center for entrepreneurial thinking. Well, it wouldn't be if the funders didn't want that. Like it could have mm -hmm. been a center for creative writing if that's what the funders wanted. Yeah. I think, I mean, you walk around, I'll just use Penn State, my home campus, as an example. You walk around Penn State's campus, you see an incredible difference between the, what the buildings look like, how well they resourced they are. Like our um, SMEAL, our College of Business, is beautiful. Um, high, like high tech, everything, glass. Um, and it's in large part due to alums and philanthropic donors who will contribute money there because they get future employees out of SMEAL. Um, and the same thing with our um, College of Communications um, and their relationships. You see, I think, just the cartography of our universities as you walk through, I think you can really notice where the, where the money is. Yeah, and, and you notice, like, yeah, I'm thinking of my own campus where all the buildings built by the government look a certain way um, up until a certain era. And then you have the buildings built by uh, funders and, and philanthropy and donors. And then there's one new building, like our a new tower on campus is being built predominantly with government funding. But it's not a new building. It's actually like they took the old building down to the concrete frame and then rebuilt the building. Uh, which is really interesting. So, and then the building that's funded by donors is actually being completely demolished and rebuilt. So I think there, like, there's interesting pieces there too about, I think, like what kind of environmental accountability or government accountability required that. I mean, it could have just, I, it may just have come down to like the actual state of the buildings and, and what could be salvaged and what couldn't. But I know also getting like LEED certified in terms of architecture and whatnot is a huge decision-making 
push, like like decisions are made being made around what buildings are like and what buildings look like almost more on that side of things than on the, well, how is this a conducive learning space side of things? Yeah. Yeah. Even though I don't think they're funding any buildings, but hey. <laughs> <laughs> hey. That's really interesting. So what took you from your previous graduate work in, in uh, communications and rhetoric and whatnot into this space of higher ed? Yeah, uh, well, I had actually started a PhD program um, in the English department down at the University of Georgia, probably cl close to a dozen years ago now. Mm -hmm. It's been a while. Um, and I ended up leaving after a master's um, in part because the, the job market for English faculty was just abysmal yeah. um, at the time. This was shortly after the the, the crash of 07, 08 yep. in the U.S. Um, so it was partially just pragmatic. I needed a job that would pay coming out of it. <laughs> um, and partly, I think I really realized that while I loved playing language games, I loved teaching, I taught um, multicultural literature, and I taught rhetoric and composition at the undergrad level at, at UGA, um, I really wanted to be having conversations more about policy and having conversations mm. more about how to change some of the things that I was. So I taught first year students a class on rhetoric and composition on understanding political rhetoric. Yeah. Um, so we're having all these conversations, reading state level policy, reading local policy, uh, how are they being rhetorically constructed to be effective for their audiences and things like that. And the more I was reading about policy, the more I didn't want to just study it, but also be involved in shifting it and changing it and influencing right. the directions that it was taking. Um, so I kind of left having an existential crisis. So like, oh, I can't be an English professor. Because right. one, I can't get a job. And two, I don't think it's going to fulfill that part of me that's really um, looking to have a voice in a different set of conversations. Um, and then it took me over a decade to figure out how to position myself in that conversation um, and realizing that I really wanted it to be rooted in education policy. Um, my program in higher education at Penn State is within the ed policy department, um, so right. it has that focus. Um, and I, I went up, I did admissions for a long time at both the K, like elite private K-12, um, but then also in law schools for a while. Huh. Um, thinking that maybe admissions policies and having shifts there because admissions has such power over social mobility, has such yeah. power over maintenance of whiteness of our, oh, so many things. Um, and so I was a, an administrator in admissions for a long time and then realized I needed the letters after my name um, to be able to have conversations at the level I wanted to have. Yeah. And so I came back for the PhD yeah. in ed policy. Yeah. 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 And to be invited to the table where those conversations be, are being had. Um, yeah. It's really interesting to talk about admission policy because I don't I don't look at admission policy, but I look at assessment policy and assessment practices. And um, in Alberta, we still have final high school exams that are worth they're only worth 30 percent of the grade now. When I wrote them, they were worth 50, uh, but they're only worth 30 percent of the grade now. And uh, but they still exist. And one of the big reasons is that or justifications. I won't say it's a reason. It's a justification is that, well, universities want them for admissions. And 
yes and no, because there are provinces that don't have these exams and those students still get admitted to universities. There are countries that don't have these exams and those students still get admitted to universities. And all these universities are also now saying, if you couldn't write your final exams because of the pandemic, we're just going to look at your class grade. Like whatever your final grade is, that's your final grade. We don't care if it had an exam component or not. So now no one can make an excuse that, oh, we have to have these standardized, large scale, extremely high stakes exams. Yeah, we're, we're seeing that play out. So I, most schools, I think in the U.S., with a couple of state exceptions, don't have those kind of final exams. Right. Uh, but we do have like the SAT yeah, and the ACT. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we're having the same situation this year where that's being waived in a lot of programs. And they're like, this year, don't worry, we're going to go test optional, we'll go test blind, which is problematic language, but leave it yeah. outside. Um, and I'm like, okay, well, if that works, right, why do we need to go back to the test afterward? If you're yeah. saying we can admit a class, we can admit um, a diverse class, a competitive class, qualified class without needing this tool. Yeah. Why is the tool there to begin with? Um, I mean, and we can, we know why the tool is, we know why the, tool's why the SAT was created, but yeah. And, and it like, it's really interesting to me too, because especially like in the U S far more than in Canada, like for the most part, most universities in Canada, you get admitted based on your high school average. That's it. Whereas uh, there are many, I know there's some that don't do it and they do just admit based on GPA or, or SAT score or whatever, but there's lots that you do have the college admission essay is a thing in the States. And that's not a thing in Canada. So if they're already considering multiple data points, like I think that's a really good start. We need to start looking at multiple data points in Canada. College essays also have a whole other problematic thing, but looking at multiple data points, um, it, I think is is moving us in that direction. Um, but yeah, it's just, it, it. we know like there's research out there that shows that indicator of student success in college is not their SAT score is not their high school average. There's other indicators. There's better indicators. Like there a student's ability to stick to things and stick with things is actually going to uh, predict their outcomes far better than what their high school average was. Yeah. And I, I, it's interesting hearing you say that it sounds like Canada may be moving in a more kind of holistic or multi-factor kind of decision process. Um, because I worry a lot that the U.S. is going to move in the opposite direction, um, given some of the, the legal challenges and trying to roll back holistic admissions um, in favor of pure test, pure quantifiable data. So your GPA right. and your, your SAT, ACT. Um, there's, there are lawsuits working their way through the courts right now um, that would really try to push it back in that direction. Um, so we're right, because there's the, the, the huge issue of... Um... I mean, all those celebrities that like bought their their kids' ways into college, right? Uh, that too. There's a whole. Um, yeah, that's a whole thing. But then, yeah, like on the academic integrity side, you have all these people who pay somebody else to write their college admission essays, or just straight up lie on their college admission essays. So yeah, I think there's problematic issues. But I mean, for grad school, like we don't get admitted solely based on our GPA. There's other components that are looked at. Uh, so why do we admit undergrads like that? Why do we admit, like, I work in our, our I teach in our Bachelor of Education program. Why do we, how do we admit future teachers based on their grade point average alone? Like, especially, like, we know this. We know this. Like, know this. yeah, like, especially, like, you would think, especially future teachers, isn't, 
like I went, I went to school with people who had literally never like spoken to a child and, and yes, I, I would like, we do need bachelor of education programs in adult education. We don't ha- really have that. Um, so they're kind of, for, even if you're interested in education, this is really the only degree path and you, but you do have to go through a practicum. You do have to pass all these things because the program is accredited and it's designed to make you a teacher. So if you, and a K to 12 teacher. So if you don't want to teach K to 12, like it's not the route for you. And how do you know if you want to teach K to 12, if you've never been around children? Like it just, it, it blows my mind, no, but uh, yeah, it is complicated anyway. I don't know. Those are my rants. I've, I've got rants. <laughs> Go off. Go off, girl. That's good. So as you're, uh, as you're progressing in your PhD, I never want to say like, as you're nearing the end, because we're, I mean, I'm in this nebulous stage of, of just writing as well. And it's never just, and it's never nearing the end. It feels like it's just continues on um, and gets bigger. The more I write, the bigger it feels. Um, but uh what what would you say has been like the biggest challenge for you to navigate so far? Yeah, um, I think a lot of my challenges came very early in the program. Um, I really struggled my first year and a half, two years maybe, about whether or not I had make, made the right choice to come back. Um, most of my cohort was younger um, and was coming either straight through from master's programs or hadn't really worked as much. Um, So that was a bit of a struggle figuring out who I was amongst that community. Um, And I think the other thing, I struggled a lot making the transition from full-time employee to full-time student Mm. um, in terms of uh, the amount of, the amount of respect maybe I was seen by people I would have considered my peers previously, but now I'm just a grad student. And so it Uh, no longer being a colleague, but being an assistant was hard. Um, I think for me, as well as what the labor of a full-time grad student, full-time researcher or part-time research assistant looks like, like, I was like, what are my deliverables? What are like, what are my objectives for the day? And And it's not really a thing. They're like, well, we want you to read and think thoughts and come prepared to have conversations. What, what do you, what do you mean? Um, So that was part. And then I think the other part was really about finding my people. It took me a long time in terms of where my research interests maybe aligned, where my political commitments aligned, um, where my particular combination of scholarship and service and activism aligned. It took me a really long time. And so I was very, very lonely the first couple of years um, and really thought about leaving the program at least a couple of times a week um, for the first two years. Um, But I I think um, I started to find people both at Penn State and then increasingly, especially over the last nine months, um, have found my people virtually um, Mm -hmm. throughout networks and building communities that way. And that has been transformative for my doctoral journey. I have so many follow-up questions, but <laughs> first of all is with transitions. Cause I think that's a really key piece in terms of like there, I find there's a lot of transitions in a PhD program. There's 
like when you're starting out transitioning from whatever you're doing before to, to doing the PhD. And then there's transition from doing coursework to being done with coursework and preparing for candidacy. And then there's post-candidacy transitioning to um, doing, like doing your research and actually getting to be out in the field or whatever your field is. And then there's transition into the writing phase and then there's transition back out into hopefully the workforce. Um, and so there's a lot of transitions there. And so you talked about like wanting to quit, but what, what helps you to not, what helps you to, to like weather that storm and to get through that transition? Um, this is going to sound a little bit self-serving and like a plug, um, <laughs> because I do work with AERA. Um, but I came my first year, very, very close to quitting. I was miserable. And then I went to AERA for the first time in New York city. And so I think part of it was like leaving state college, Pennsylvania, which is rural. Um, I'm a city person. I had come from Boston to state college and I was part of that was just my struggle and be like, mm. where am I right now? Um, and so getting to go back to New York in April of my first year and to be like, oh, there's life excitement. This is fantastic. Um, but also conferencing and having the ability to go to sessions where I was excited about what was being talked about. And I was mm. learning from people who um, were having the conversations that I wanted to have, but didn't feel like I was getting um, mm -hmm. yet, yet um, at my home institution. I was like, okay, maybe I don't feel like I belong yet at Penn State, but I could see myself belonging in this field. I can see myself belonging in this broader community. Um, and I think that gave me the, the hope to stick it out a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. um, and then gradually throughout my second year, I started finding my people. Um, and that made it okay to be, to belong at Penn State as well as to belong in the broader yeah. space as well. Yeah. Yeah. My first ARA was 2017. No, was that 20? No, not 2017. I don't know. Is the year I was in Toronto? I don't remember when that was. It was a couple years ago now. Um, 19, yeah. Oh gosh. At least I was like, it was an odd year. At least, yeah. Yeah, I guess it was only tw that was only 2019. Um, and and me, I think like I struggle with ARA and I struggle with some of these other big conferences. Like we have a, a similar one in Canada with the um, Canadian Society for the Study of Education. But finding like a home for my research has been, has been a, a huge challenge for me. So finding like... Um, like, yes, I, my population is post-secondary and I work with post-secondary instructors, but I'm working on classroom assessment or like formative assessment, but in Canada and everyone doing this research is in Australia and the UK. Mm. And so when I got to go to the assessment and higher ed conference in the UK, that's what it was like for me. I was like, like, these are my people. We're talking the same language and, and we're having the conversa same conversations and we're talking about the things that I find really interesting and but they're all in the uk <laughs> so yeah. so i've been struggling a lot right now with the online piece of there's still all these conferences and webinars but the time difference like i just have not made it happen i want to make it happen but it's just it's not happening um i just the time difference is just not i'm not good with it yeah. it's not my friend uh, I, either, I either screw it up in the first place and i get the time difference wrong or it is actually like just 3am and I'm not getting up for a webinar at 3am. So, yeah. um, yeah. And, and so finding people like, 
everyone's like, oh, I'd, like I wish we were in person at ARA. But the community that was then created through Division J post-secondary in ARA wouldn't have happened at all in this way if it wasn't for us being forced online, I think. Yeah, I was. Uh, I had a conversation earlier today because a couple of us who helped create um, initially create it's taken on a whole life of its own. But to set the <laughs> kind of the initial footprint for the the Div J community, um, we're presenting at the Association for the Study of Higher Education conference right, yeah. tomorrow. Um, and so we met earlier today, and we're talking about how um, this community, in so many ways, is a happy accident. Um, yeah, yeah. We weren't trying to be disruptive. We weren't trying to create this um, this space that really has legs, and I think will continue to exist well after you know, quarantine and COVID are, are over. Yeah. Um, we just were sad that we weren't going to see each other because AERA was canceled, and we're like, hey, let's do like a one month thing where we get to schedule time to hang out with each other. Yeah. Um, and maybe to give it some legitimacy, we'll call it a writing group. Like we might not actually work. We don't really know if anyone else is going to show up. The three of us just want to hang out and talk. Yeah. And then it spiraled. It went so much bigger and so much more dedicated than I think we had ever imagined it would um, and became something I think really special um, and really exciting. But yeah, it would not have happened um, if kind of these terrible, unexpected, really challenging times hadn't come up on us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I find it really interesting because I don't know, well, I'm sure you know about it, but there's like that ARA, DivJ, like emerging, emerging scholars or, or I can't remember exactly what it's called, but a smaller group that I guess they officially bring together to do these sorts of things around... Um, around ARA and, and to support like emerging grad students and whatnot. But what's interesting to me is that the programming from that, that was very official was like, fell so flat compared to this community that was just kind of like, Hey, we're going to hang out. And like, if you want to write, we'll write, but we're going to hang out. And, and that really struck me as really interesting. And so, and they had started a Slack channel, like right from day one, um, and our Slack channel didn't come along until much later, but, yeah. uh, but it really fell flat. And so I think that's really interesting when you say that about, like, you kind of, you have to come in and just say like, looking for connection, but we're not going to mandate what that looks like. Yeah. And I, I think what's been fascinating for me too, is that like, we have writing group twice a week. And more times, actually, because I know you run some morning ones sometimes, yeah. Rudy's got some, Ariel's got some, um, but we have kind of two official-ish ones yeah. on the, the Monday and the Wednesday. Monday and Wednesday, yeah. Yeah. And um, what I think is fascinating is that what those groups look like can be completely different given what folks need at the time. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I will never forget the breakout group conversations we had immediately after the murder of George Floyd. Over the yeah. And as Black Lives Matter was really um, becoming as, as visible as it has been and active as it has been this year. Yeah. And then again, processing around the American election, the US election, mm -hmm. and like being able to say, I can't write right now. I need 
like I'm, I'm entering into the, into the space with vulnerability. I'm entering into the space with pain. I need something else from the community than to be held accountable for my proposal or this article I'm supposed to be working on. And I think what the group has given me um, or how I've most benefited from it um, is that I, like, I've had a really tough quarantine, right? <laughs> and, and I could go into that space and say, hey, I really need a conversation with somebody. This is the first time I'm seeing another human being's face in a week and a half or whatever it's been. Or I need to cry. I've cried on camera, like, mm-hmm. or I need that. Um, and being able to be responsive um, to members' needs like that, while also saying, and doc life goes on throughout this period, right? And we still have assistantship responsibilities, we have work responsibilities, we have family responsibilities. We also want to graduate at some point, so we probably ought to write this dissertation. Um, but to be able to hold all those things at once, our humanity and our graduate graduate student-ness um, together at the same time and say, okay, what hat do you need to wear right now mm-hmm. um, is a powerful thing. So. Yeah, and, I, and like really having these sessions where it's like, just show up. There's nothing, like you don't have to prepare. You don't have to be ready to talk about X, Y, or Z. And I think that's the difference in what I've seen of, of when others or even I have tried to do groups where it's like, okay, this is our topic or, or we have speakers on this or, or that. And it's just another thing for people to do where it versus a space for people to, to just be and, and, and to have community, um, I think is, is really different. And I think like when you talk about finding your people, I think that's where, where you can make those connections because you actually get a chance to talk and you get a chance to, to, to just, I don't know, connect in different ways rather than, oh, we're going to listen to this panelist and then we're going to ask the panelist questions and then we're done. Yeah. yeah. And it's a fascinating thing too. Like I, I have only met two of the people in the DipJ community in the flesh. Like everyone really? else, I, I only know virtually. Um, but there are people in that group who there are a lot of people in that group who I care about now really Mm -hmm. deeply and I'm really invested in your lives and your research but also everything else you've got going on and like this this is fast like it would not have occurred to me to try to build relationships like this in this way Mm -hmm. Um, and maybe that's also because I'm older (laughs) than a lot of people in that group where I'm like what do you mean technology how do you So I don't know. People have to teach me how to use Zoom regularly, but other than that, (laughs) it works. I I was lucky I got it. My university or my department adopted Zoom before the pandemic. And so I had taught like a full semester using Zoom before everyone went to Zoom. And so I felt really lucky. Just so that I I was prepared to to then also help others use Zoom and things like that. Um, but one thing like that I'm really hearing and that I think is important for other people here is that if you're craving community, also don't wait for others to create it for you. Is that if you're craving community and you want, you're looking for something, just create it and others will come because others probably are looking for it too. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I think in some ways we got really lucky 
in terms of we happen to be offering the type of programming that folks were like, yeah, sure, I'll show up to that. Yeah. Um, but it was also creating programming around what we were hungry for and feeling that we needed and didn't have. And then we were surprised, but in some ways really validating, validated to hear that that's what a lot of people were hungry for. Yeah. Um, and it, um, I think, normalized loneliness in some ways for us that it's it's okay I'm not weird or I'm not abnormal for not feeling completely at home at my institution and needing to look outside for it yeah because um, folks came out of the woodwork and were like this is an important space for me I don't have it necessarily in other spaces yeah um, and so I was like oh okay I'm not I'm not a bad grad student for not getting it at home kind of mm. yeah absolutely and I think like one thing that happens too is that like our research always ends up going in such different directions than anyone in our own cohorts as well. And that's what I found is that like, there's no one doing research that I'm doing uh, in Canada, like let alone another grad student. Like it's really, I don't know how I got onto it, but there's, there's not much being coming out of Canada on it. So, and, but if I look to K to 12, there is, but K to 12 is very different than higher ed and, and all these sorts of sorts of reasons. And they don't necessarily look at my research as having interest because it's in higher ed. So there's these complicated things as well. And then knowing that there's like a whole bunch of other people out there who, who care about higher ed and care about like what's going on from everything from policy to teaching and learning. Um, But like it really spans, spans it. And um yeah, it's it's really interesting, and then also as a Canadian, as one of, like the one of the two token Canadians in the group, um, uh, I mean, we can be we can be quite a bit anti-American at times. Um, and, so can we. <laughs> and and so also having a group that um, I I mean to to renew my faith in Americans has <laughs> been. Oh man, there's some pressure, right? There you go. Let's yeah. rehabilitate America. Let's rehabilitate America. No, but I like it's it's been really good too because then also like when I started this podcast, I was like, okay, well, who am I who am I gonna have on? Like, what's my network? Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, actually, I have I have quite a few different networks, and and um, like this is a big network as well. So it's been really helpful in in me pursuing my own interests as well, and, and getting to meet new people and. And now I've also been inspired to uh, create a community for new educational developers. So in the new role that I started um, and uh, quite a few people, we had like a, an institute thing, but it's basically, yeah, like here's some sessions. And, but we did get breakout rooms where we got to chat and, and everyone seemed to crave, like no one really knows like what they're supposed to be doing. Kind of like what you're talking about in the transition to grad school. No one really knows what they're supposed to be doing in this like new career, whether it's new to them and it's kind of nebulous and, and everyone's working from home. And so you mm-hmm. can't tell what your neighbor is doing. You can't tell what like the person across the office is doing. And so it's like, am I doing the right thing? But how should I be spending my time? Like, what are you doing? So creating community for that too. And, and a space where we could just kind of like, oh, this is what I'm working on. Like that sort of stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. I've been, um, so I, kind of a TA, kind of a co-instructor for one of our required classes for first year doc students at Penn State. Mm. And one of the, the conversations I've been having a lot with them is about how do we get informal socialization? 
Like, how do we have those kind of casual conversations we would have had passing each other in the halls or sticking your head into the next person's study carol or something like yeah. that? Because you, you don't know what you don't know, so you don't know to ask the question, which I feel like is, and, and you don't just have the casual learning environments that would happen in so many normal spaces if we were face-to-face which sounds like the, the conversation of the struggles that you're yeah. having with some of your colleagues too. Um, and I think, I think Slack in some ways gives us that. You can ask like the random question into the void and see if somebody answers it, or you can post intros about your research or things like that. But I, I think that's one of, I miss so many things about being able to actually physically exist on campus and be in that kind of community with people. Um, But I think that's one of the things I miss the most is those informal, really spontaneous learning and opportunities that we just don't have. And things that aren't necessarily centered around, like, I have a question or a complaint or (laughs) or whatever. Um, And... Now, like what we really need is a, a video conferencing tool that is, or, or a meeting that's like open, people can pop in at any time, but that you can tell if somebody else is already in it. Mm. So like, like a water cooler, right? Like when you're at work, you see someone else is at the water cooler. So you're like, oh, now is a good time to get some water and you go in and, and have a break. So a space where like, if you're taking a half hour break, or 20 minute break, you could go into that room and then someone else might see that you're there and then come join you there. And I think that's then how we have those actual like bumping in conversations, not just the like, here's my issue or here's my problem or here's my success or here's my whatever. Um, it doesn't require us necessarily to put something out there. It's just, it brings people together. Yeah. It makes me think of that. Um, what was it called? Second life. Do you remember when that was yeah, a, yeah. a thing? Yeah, where you'd have like the avatar and they could walk around, but you were still doing your actual life and work. Yeah. It's like, let's just have that technology now so that the little yeah, avatar like, could like walk what, up to the water cooler. Second life. Yeah. I don't know. Remember when like people thought that was going to take over everything and we were just going to live in second life? Yeah. I, I, I'd be down right now yeah. if it was a thing. <laughs> Sign me up. Yeah, I need to find, I don't know, maybe there's a way to like integrate a Zoom room with Slack so that people can see if they're in the, if there's people in the room or not. This is my new challenge. I'm going to work on it because I see that in like in, in teams. Um, generally, I hate teams, but uh, you can see that somebody else like for um, work, we do have like an informal coffee chat and you can see if somebody started the meeting or not. So you might not be prompted to, to start it, but I might see that somebody else has started the meeting and then I, oh, okay, I'll go join. Like, oh, Johnny's there. So I'm going to go chat with Johnny. Like, so something like that, but not using Teams because Teams is annoying. So I agree with both of that. (laughs) That's my new challenge. Well, what, like, if you had one piece of advice for people right now, what would, what would you share? Um, I would say, reach out. I mean, I think that, I think everyone's struggling right now. Um, Mm. And so I hesitate to be like, anyone would be perfectly happy to email you back or jump on Zoom and talk to you for three hours. Like that's not realistic. No. (laughs) Um, But at the same time, I think that I worry. um, And it's one of the conversations that comes up a lot with the first year students that I work with. um, 
that people think they can't reach out, um, mm-hmm. whether they're they're struggling or they're feeling yeah. lonely or they're just feeling disconnected, um, and thinking that they'll be too much of a burden if they shoot an email out that says, you know, hi, I'm so and so, I'm a first year, I'd love to learn more about your your research or your life or your humanity, whatever it is. Um, I'd love to chat and get to know you. Um, don't be afraid to shoot your shot kind of thing. Like put it out there um, because I know at least in the same way that when we created the Div J groups, because it was something we were hungry for, um, I think you'll be surprised how many people are also hungry for that human connection. And so if yeah. you take the initiative to reach out um, and, and make an ask, um, whatever it is, um, I think you may be surprised by the response you get and how hungry folks are to have some human connection right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're so right. <clears throat> well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been a treat and I've really enjoyed chatting with you more. And uh, yeah, I'll, uh, well, I'll see you tomorrow at the writing group. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And thank you so much again for inviting me. This is very, very cool. And I'm happy to kind of share my story and my recommendations. And also if folks do want to reach out, I am very much on Twitter. I'm very much on email and love to talk. Excellent. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for accepting the invitation. Of course. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Educate Me. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and subscribe on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podcast Addict, or wherever you listen to podcasts. A huge thank you to our audio producer, Sean Paris. Join us again next week for more stories of surviving and thriving in graduate school. Until then, stay in school.